BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. On July 5th, 1852, Frederick Douglass delivered a speech titled, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Calling attention to the hypocrisy of the Declaration of Independence and its claim that all men are created equal. Today, amid protests against racism and a growing Black Lives Matter movement, equality is still a goal in progress. And the promises of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness ring differently, and perhaps more profoundly, in an ongoing pandemic that continues to claim both lives and livelihoods. Still, America and its ideals persist. This hour, we'll talk to author Casey Gerald about Douglas's speech and the current challenges we face as a nation, and hear what the 4th of July means to you. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. That was the late actor Ozzie Davis reading from Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, which Douglass delivered in 1852 to the Rochester Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society. He minced no words throughout the speech, highlighting how only some were supported by the Declaration of Independence, but not all. And today, over 150 years after that speech was given and on the eve of America's 244th birthday, we're still striving for equality. And for the equal opportunity for justice and prosperity while a pandemic surges and federal leadership is failing. So we might ask today, what to an America in strife is the 4th of July? Joining me now to reflect on that question, Douglas's speech and more is Casey Gerald, author of the memoir, There Will Be No Miracles Here. He also wrote the essay, The Black Art of Escape, which was published by New York Magazine last year. Welcome back to Forum, Casey Gerald. So good to be with you. Good morning. So when Forum began planning this segment, I immediately thought of you because you're someone who has openly grappled with and interrogated America's ideals, like the American dream, for example, and held them and your own life up to the light in search of some truth. So I've been curious to hear how you've thought about Independence Day, particularly given the current moment we're in. Uh, But first, I do want us to hear a bit more from Frederick Douglass as read by Ozzie Davis, and then I'll get your thoughts. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. So, Casey, do you have a memory of the first time you heard about or read that speech by Frederick Douglass? You know, it was so interesting. The first time, uh, first of all, I love hearing Ossie Davis. I know, very I know. Comforting, actually. You know? Um, the first time I saw it, um, I saw it before I read it. I was in college at Yale. Uh, I was a senior, and in the Beinecke Rare Manuscript Library is the first printing of um, of What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. And I remember I had to go through all of these kind of you know Mission Impossible checkpoints, you know, to to see it. And it really 
was holy for me and I sort of pocketed that memory. And I think of Douglas, I approach him first of all um, as someone who works in the tradition that he founded, right? Which is sort of this African-American personal narrative and memoir and autobiography. And I think of the position that he stands in while he's given that speech. These people I'm assuming invite him uh, thinking, wow, how incredible that this formerly enslaved person is sort of, you know, able to be so eloquent and shouldn't we feel good about ourselves about inviting him here? And he turns it on its head. And I, I similarly thought about um, my role um, with writing and um, uh, there will be no miracles here. Um, I had accomplished by my late 20s about everything a kid is supposed to achieve in the society. I had gone from this you know, poor, black, queer, damn near orphan in the forgotten world of Texas and gone off to Yale and Harvard Business School and done all these things. But I was really cracked up um, despite or because of this journey of Horatio Algerism, right? And so I set out with this book to trace those cracks and in so doing sort of trace this stuff that I had seen of America from the very bottom to the very top so that it wasn't so much an indictment of the American dream, but a document that showed the bankruptcy of the American machine. In our time, this American machine that leads so many people from nothing to nowhere while picking off the chosen few like me, you see. Um, and so I think what Douglas is doing and this is why it's almost like he, he calls us to this Declaration of Independence, calls us to the Constitution as the instruction manuals of the machine. And he doesn't indict the instruction manual, he indicts the people who have, uh, 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 who have sort of perverted the instruction manual, you see. So I think what we're in right now, which is so beautiful, and in many ways makes Douglas's speech and life prophetic, is we're in the early days of a beautiful and dangerous revolution in this country uh, of people who are interrogating in the spirit of Douglas uh, as he sort of harkens back to the founders who he says were men of peace but, um, but uh, refused to tolerate oppression, right? When it was time for revolution. I think we're in that sort of moment here. And I think uh, Douglas as witness um, actually inform so much of Douglas's prophet. And I think that is what is so remarkable about this speech and about his legacy. Mm. And you mentioned your, your memoir, There Will Be No Miracles Here. And I know in the beginning of that, you talk about the longing for something to believe in. And mm -hmm. you say that in your search for that something, you made it to that mountaintop, um, but quote, I have come with urgent news. We must find another mountain, if not another world, to call our own. Do you see some of the uprisings that have come after the killing of George Floyd, now starting the toppling of Confederate statues, potentially in that vein of another mountain, another world? I do um, on two fronts. Uh, someone asked me the other day, I said, oh, well, what's your, what is your, um, why are you hopeful? Is there anything about this moment that you're hopeful about? And I said, the clearest sign of hope for me has been the violence, has been when those young people set the third precinct in Minneapolis on fire, set the Daughters of American uh, Confederacy on fire, uh, went and tore down the statue of John McDonough, big slaver in New Orleans, went and tore down, beheaded the statue of Columbus, I think, in Boston. Um, I, I, violence is really the only language that America understands. And Douglas uh, highlighted that more than anybody. So, and he also, in a beautiful way in this speech, I mean, you hear sort of, you would later hear echoes of this in King's um, uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. He really highlights the hypocrisy of those who counsel uh, moderation and who counsel, well, let's just talk about it, right? Um, the history of this country um, has been a history of people um, uh, employing um, very extreme violence um, to either defile the Constitution and Declaration of Independence or to bring it closer to bear. So that's one piece that makes me hopeful. The other piece in terms of this mountain and turning it on its head, um, I've been very struck by this sort of grappling um, within Black people at this moment. 
and within those of us who are trying to figure out what does a sort of collective liberation look like in this country. And folks are saying, hey, it's not enough to, um, for a few um, sort of bourgeois black people to get book deals and get on the New York Times bestseller list and get their movie sold and, you know, the representative revolution um, that so often we settle for. But in a world after President Obama's uh, um, administration, I think we've really learned that either, and I say this in my essay, The Black Art of Escape, either all of us are going to be, you know, uh, the N-word, or none of us are going to be the N-word for any of us to be free. And so I see this grappling uh, internally that I think is going to play in the revolution uh, going forward, that is saying um, it's not... It's not just that we're interrogating who gets to the mountain, it's uh, interrogating why it is that we have accepted this hierarchical society that only allows a few people to make it while leaving the rest of us languishing in poverty or in despair, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that kind of um, deeper uh, sense of a collective liberation is something that makes me very hopeful. So we actually have one more clip of the actor Ozzie Davis reading from Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave of the Fourth What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, where Douglass is offering what he thinks is needed for America to live up to its declaration of independence. And it kind of harkens to some of the ideas in terms or you mentioning the violence that you were seeing coming out of the George Floyd killing. So let's hear a bit of that. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. So one could say we're certainly feeling the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake right now. What are, what's your reaction to, to hearing that piece? Well, I think uh, a few, uh, I think of a conversation I had with Van Jones a few uh, years ago in Kentucky. And he was in some ways asking the question of, well, why don't you support more sort of um, uh, reconciliation and bipartisanship and all this kind of stuff? And I told him, I said, you know, I spent three years traveling the country and so uh, leading up to 2016. And so often with people would say, well, Casey, why, when are we going to start working again together and come and work across the aisle and just kind of get along like we used to do? And I said, well, that sounds very romantic, but it's quite ahistorical. I uh, said, so, you know, you remember that the first uh, Treasury Secretary, it's so funny we're having this conversation the day Hamilton is released. You forget the first Treasury, Treasury Secretary was shot to death by the Vice President. And you remember that... Uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, without whom we don't have half the country, was basically a genocidal maniac. You remember that Mr. Lincoln, who is, um, for all intents and purposes, you know, our saint, uh, gave an inaugural address, which was very poetic, but in which he said, uh, I'm willing to kill as many people as I have to uh, for us to come out on the right side of this question. So we live in a moment where we have an administration uh, not just in Washington, but in many states across the country that has uh, enabled and allowed and in some cases ensured that tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans will die. We have an administration in Washington around the country that has ensured that millions of Americans will, if not die from coronavirus, may die from any other things that will be caused from the rampant degrees of unemployment and lack of, uh, of, of support. So we have in this country, a pretty uh, terrifying consensus. Uh, and let's not even mention uh, the consensus that we have 
around not protecting uh, trans women of color who are dying at alarming rates and getting even more silence. So we have already, um, to Douglas's point, we have already a sort of regime of violence that has been, uh, as he says, by sins of omission and commission, he talks about, that has been established. And so I think it is right that it's not time for us to say, well, let's sit down for Sunday dinner with neo-Nazis. It's time to remove everyone uh, with a retrograde view of humanity and of America, remove them from public and private life, um, not by killing them, but uh, we've got to we've got to put um, people um, uh, first in this country, and we've got to put people with a humane sense of what the country ought to be in positions of power. And I think Douglas knew that more than anybody. So, if you're just joining us, we're talking about Frederick Douglass's famous speech, "What to the Slave is the Fourth of July," and the meaning of July Fourth in these unique and challenging times. We're talking with Casey Gerald, author of the memoir "There Will Be No Miracles Here." What does the 4th of July mean to you? Does the holiday have new meaning for you this year, for better or worse? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. You can post your questions or comments on Facebook, Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Or email us at forum at kqed.org. So some scholars in recent years have been calling the U.S. a failed experiment. Um, Frederick Douglass in his speech, you know, speaks of it being 76 years old at the time that he delivered the speech and that though a good old age for a man is but a mere speck in the life of a nation, saying that nations number their years by thousands. And he saw hope in that, that in a sense we're in a childhood at that time. So now at 244 years old, perhaps we're in the growing pains of early adolescence by his measure. Or are we at a national age where one could say that America is a failed experiment? What are your thoughts on that? Well, there are two things. First of all, and I'd encourage everyone um, who's listening to both read this speech and also read Douglas's autobiography. Douglas can be incredibly shady and it's so great. To, <laughs> and it's so, and really kind of petty in beautiful ways. And I love these sort of moments where, you know, he's saying it in a very lofty language, but he says, you know, you, you very fancy people are children. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that's actually quite nasty. So I love that. Um, the other piece is, listen, the reality is we do not know um, uh, what, uh, I love that great song. I grew up in the church and we always sing that song. I'm gonna hold out to see what the end will be. Um, we don't know what the end will be. Um, we find ourselves in a very serious situation now, but we have seen failed states. Um, and though we, I saw on Twitter a few weeks ago that America is a failed democracy and a successful police state. So, you know, maybe that's, <laughs> you know, maybe that's one version of what we ought to be. So I'm not sure that I would get to the place of saying um, we're a failed experiment and it's over. Um, uh, and maybe that in some ways is sort of, you know, how we might think about this 4th of July, just like we think of any other birthday. You know, you turn 30 and you have to take this whole stock of your life or you turn 50 or you turn 70, whatever it is, you turn 21, you start drinking. You know, every birthday gives you a chance to really reflect on have I lived the life I want to live and with the time that I have left, what do I want to do? And I think we can ask that same question of the country. But, you know, uh, I was having this conversation with someone a few uh, weeks ago, a, friend, a Jewish friend of mine. And he, who was also very depressed, and he said, well, how do you, how, why would any Black people feel optimistic about this moment? And I said, but you've got to remember, um, you know, the people that we come from. I said, and you have a great, in the Jewish uh, culture uh, and history, you have an ancestor who was alive on the day after the second temple was destroyed, you know. Uh, and if your ancestor can endure that and can then be part of a reimagining, one of the greatest reimaginings of Jewish life in the history of people, um, then I'm sure you can endure this period. So I say so often, so much, and just before I talk to you, I spent 15 minutes praying to my ancestors, um, and I write in the Black Art of Escape 
that I don't believe we are our ancestors' wildest dream, but I do believe they are our greatest hope. One of the reasons it's so important to read Douglas is because we have to remember the people that we come from and what they have endured. And if Douglas can endure that, then I'm sure I can sit in my Brooklyn apartment uh, in the middle of a plague and you know have some sense of um, hope and optimism, even if, should the Republic end tomorrow. When the Roman Empire ended, there were still Roman people the next day and they had to figure out a way to live. <laughs> so um, I think that is where um, my energy is. The country is gonna do what the country is gonna do. We as people have to be um, ruthlessly and clear-eyed uh, commitment, committed to being free and whole and alive as, as well as we possibly can. I'm going to try and squeeze a color in here before the break. David in Mill Valley, welcome. Yes, hi. My comment is about the nature of this holiday and how um, I, I love your topic. I think it's extremely important. Um, but I think it's important to also remember that the 4th of July, like any anniversary or birthday, is not just meant for celebration. I think at its core are these types of moments where we mark time are there to help us collect our memories and reflect back on episodes of the history that brought us to this moment and then to use that to move forward. So while we think of fireworks and backyard parties uh, and beach going uh, on a day like today, we and that's terrific, although we're all sheltering in place in some shape or form, hopefully. Um, it is so important, I think, to mark time and to use that moment to think about the past so we can move forward, especially during these times when marking time gets a little bit more difficult and fuzzy. Um, so I do think this 4th of July uh, is perhaps more important than many that have come before because of the problems we're facing in the country, not only politically, and with race, but even with the way we need as a people to mark time um, so that we can move forward. All right. Thank you for that comment, David. Casey, anything else you want to add? Sounds like he was echoing a lot of what you were sharing. I, I, I love what he said. And again, I think of Douglas as a writer, first and foremost, of personal narrative. So much of what he is doing um, and he's got this great part in the speech where he uh, refers to the to the Old Testament, he says, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Remembering is at the core of what Douglas does. Remembering is at the core of what we must do. I think the caller is, is spot on. And also, we must acknowledge that remembering goes against a lot of what America likes to do. We like to forget and move on and act like nothing happened. So... Again, we're speaking with Casey Gerald, author of the memoir, There Will Be No Miracles Here, talking about Frederick Douglass's speech, the meaning of July 4th. Join us. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. Post your questions, comments on Facebook, Twitter. We're at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. And we'll have more after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. We're talking about Frederick Douglass's famous speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Joining me is Casey Gerald, author of the memoir, There Will Be No Miracles Here. He also wrote the essay, The Black Art of Escape, published by New York Magazine. Um, before I get to some more calls and comments, um, I did want to get your your take on something, Casey. This year, we saw more widespread acknowledgement and celebration of Juneteenth. Um, the holiday marking the end of slavery. And there's a Senate bill looking to make it a federal holiday now, like the 4th of July. And in the context of having these recognized holidays, do you see something like that as a way for the U.S. to better acknowledge the history of slavery and buffer or balance the things people may find problematic with celebrating the 4th, like Frederick Douglass did? What are your thoughts on Juneteenth kind of entering the chat, if you will? 
Well, I've, I, I've had a lot of mixed feelings as a Texan. My family's been in Texas since before the Civil War. My grandmother was born in one of the first towns founded by formerly enslaved people in Texas in 1865. And I think it's very important. Um, one of the things I said to a friend, I said, you know, um, uh, they're gonna do to Juneteenth what they did to Christmas. I mean, if, if, if somebody went and interviewed Jesus about Christmas these days, you know, he'd probably be, <laughs> you know, apoplectic and just really, really mournful. So, you know, I think it's easy to celebrate a holiday. It's a totally different exercise to understand a holiday. And I write about this in my book, Juneteenth. You just have to really think about how absurd of a holiday Juneteenth is. On June 19th, 1865, okay, Gordon Granger showed up in Galveston, Texas and announced that these people were free uh, and were equal. Now, the Civil War was already over. Abraham Lincoln was already dead. Uh, two years had passed since the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, millions of formerly enslaved people were trying to figure out what life was going to be, and 250,000 Black Texans were just learning that they had been party to the greatest overtime fraud in the history of the world. I mean, you know, so so I think um, while I am totally hopeful and appreciative that you know we um, more people are aware of this of this date, I think it's very important. I've just finished reading the, the fantastic memoir by Sarah Broom, The Yellow House, and she writes in there that remembering is a hard chair to sit still in. And, you know, it sort of goes back to Douglas's piece about us being children. We have, we don't have a lot of patience to sit down and actually remember and understand. And so I'm hopeful about the more widespread acknowledgement about Juneteenth. I'm prayerful that it doesn't go the way of many other holidays that are great for, you know, um, for greeting cards and and uh, take out food, uh, but not particularly great for understanding. Hmm. Uh, let's go to another caller, Shabazz in Oakland. Join us. Uh, yes, good morning. I um, I, I want to say this, that uh, the framers of the Constitution uh, in, in, uh, in uh, putting forth the Constitution, it was more of a futuristic a document of days that are to come. Uh, in America, we've allowed greed to be the foundation of the of the nation, as opposed to the principles of the Constitution. So, um, any accomplishments that are gained through protests and demonstrations, we still have the same greedy mentality in charge. So, what what has to happen is that we have to emphasize more integrity, more ethics, and these kinds of human characteristics that uh, won't put profits over people. And and that's the only way that America is going to be changed. We have to bring in a more humanistic type of America that will, at least if nothing better, make people at least equal uh, to profits. And that's the real change that has to come. Business has come in and taken over uh, and use the opportunity that America provides to oppress other people. And it, and it goes beyond color and ethnicity and, and gender and anything. You got females who are in business that oppress other females, although not as wide spans as males, but, you know, given time it will come. So it, we have to have, um, uh, and I'll end with this, we have to have uh, people, we have to remake the world under the true meaning of what the Constitution really stands for right now is greed, and we shouldn't be trying to get into other people's um, or successful, and I'll make this quick metaphor. Instead of black folks trying to become a part of the Oscars, just using that as a metaphor, uh, we need to create our own uh, entertainment environment and make that uh, with a with a with a uh, emphasis on the things that we w really want to see come to pass and that should be uh, emphasized in in other areas of the society as well we have to thank remake you. the world oh, thank you for that comment Shabazz Casey do you have any thoughts and response I think Shabazz makes a great point I encourage folks to read bell hooks on this when she uh, talks about the sort of framing, the, the sort of 
uh, underpinning of the society as a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. That sounds like a kind of word soup, but each of those prongs are working in tandem to inform the violence and inhumanity and degradation of our society. And if we're gonna uh, remake the world as Shabazz says, which I think is, 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 is great, and make it a, a world that is humane for people, then we've got to um, divest ourselves of white supremacy, of capitalism, of patriot, like all of those things working together. Bell, as Bell Hooks is, you know, uh, people have been talking about this for a long time. It also makes me think about the fact that Angela Davis is still alive. <laughs> you know, Ange An we are living in a time where Angela Davis is still alive, okay, and has been talking about abolition for years and talking about everything else that so i think while it may seem daunting um this notion of remaking the world there are people who um are who have been thinking and writing through these things for decades and i think now is the time to really engage and, and listen to them and listen being an alum of harvard business school i couldn't agree more than um you know someone said that business is to this age what the church was to the middle ages is the most important institution in society. And I think that's true. And if that is true, then I think it's in desperate need of a reformation because the principles, and I say this from having spent, you know, uh, a long time engaging with my classmates and professors and alums of, of, of Harvard Business School and other business schools like it. Um, it is a bankrupt vision of capitalism that has run rampant uh, through the world. My dear friend, Anna Girdabas writes about this. I encourage you to read them also, but I think Shabbat, Shabazz is really right. Again, we're talking with Casey Gerald, author of the memoir, There Will Be No Miracles Here. We're talking about Frederick Douglass's famous speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, and the meaning of July 4th in these unique and challenging times. And we want to hear from you. What does the Fourth of July mean to you? Does the holiday have new meaning for you this year, for better or worse? Or do you have thoughts on Frederick Douglass's speech that you'd like to share with us? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Post your questions and comments on Facebook or Twitter. We're at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. Uh, so we there was some mention of Hamilton um, earlier. And yes, the film version of the hit musical is out today. Um, it's about the life of one of the founding fathers, got a multicultural hip hop remix to it. And I found this quote where creator Lin-Manuel Miranda at one point said, our cast looks like America looks now. And that's certainly intentional. It's a way of pulling you into the story and allowing you to leave whatever cultural baggage you have about the founding fathers at the door. I found that use of cultural baggage that really stood out to me. Um, we certainly have a lot of baggage as a country. Um, and as we've been talking about reimagining ourselves, I'm wondering, and, and especially, you know, having access to art and, and creativity in that way, can we reimagine ourselves? And is there a role for plays and, and artistry like Hamilton to be a part of that reimagination? Um. Not if, uh, not if we uh, are thinking that we're leaving cultural baggage anywhere. I mean, what person do you know at 80 years old who still is not informed, or 90 or 100 or whatever, who is still not informed by what happened to them when they were six? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's just not realistic, you see. So I think it's best we turn to Hollywood for entertainment. I think it's best we turn to plays for entertainment. I'm not particularly sure that at a time as urgent as this, we ought to turn to an industry that is fantastic at uh, distracting us and making us feel good or making us feel a lot of things. I'm not entirely sure that our best move, um, you know, when we've got a deep, deep illness is rather than go to the doctor to go to the movies. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, kind of in vain to some of what Shabazz was bringing up and, and you've touched on as well in terms of looking at, well, Shabazz was mentioning the, the Constitution and needing to kind of look at what that really represents. In preparing for this segment, I kind of revisited the Declaration of Independence. And it was fascinating to read some aspects of it that um, seem, again, very timely. 
Um, and just interesting in terms of the debates that are happening right now in terms of our government and that it essentially, you know, outlines the powers that if the government is no longer serving um, in a way that the people feels or functioning and serving the people that, you know, the people have the power to um, reorganize that and establish new principles. Um, so it's I'm curious what your thoughts are then in terms of maybe revisiting our documents as a reimagination and, and what that might look like. Well, you know, it's interesting. Again, I think about it from, you know, a perspective of having grown up. Uh, you know, my grandfather was a, a, a minister and took um, the, you know, biblical text to be, I don't, but he took the biblical text to be the literal word of God. And um, it still took a whole lifetime to try to, um, to try to live out what was on paper. Okay. I mean, this is what Douglas is doing in, in the speech. He says at the end, he has this, he almost gets into sort of this constitutional interpretation debate around does the constitution sanction slavery? And he says, it's clear that it doesn't. And the best legal minds of the time say it doesn't. Uh, King would continue this at the March on Washington when he says, you know, uh, live up to what you say on paper. So uh, uh, sure, I think it's always worthwhile to interrogate and read what's on paper, but um, when we live in a country where uh, the Congress and the Supreme Court and the executive branch um, have, um, have acted uh, consistently to infringe upon voting rights that are clearly outlined in our founding documents, and that's less of the fault of the documents, and it's more of the fault of the people in power. So I think um, I will be more um, interested in this notion of um, seeing in the declaration, and this is what Douglas does again, seeing in the declaration a great uh, endorsement to replace uh, everyone in political power in America who is not actually living up to those founding documents and founding ideals. And I think we've got a lot of people who need to go uh, as quickly as possible. All right, let's go to another caller, Chris in Santa Rosa. You're on. Hello. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was just watching a documentary recently about someone who I'd never heard of, and then I didn't feel really bad um, about not knowing who he was when the documentary itself said he's one of the forgotten civil rights leaders of the 60s, and that would be Whitney Young. And as the person you're interviewing was educated at Harvard Business School, I was just wondering what the thoughts might be on Whitney Young's idea of what was necessary at the time, which is what he called a Marshall Plan for Black America. And since Martin Luther King had some of the same ideas, and we know that all those ideas kind of got pushed to the wayside because of Viet, you know, the escalation in Vietnam and you know all the events that happened then, but all that stuff that didn't happen obviously still needs to happen. So as someone with a mortgage industry background who knows about the FHA and the redlining and all that kind of stuff and all the oppression and the exclusion that happened there, what are the ways in which policy-wise, and I realize that we're you know 55 years down the road now, but what are the policy ideas that we can come up with that the Whitney Youngs were trying to enact back in the late 60s as a follow-up to the Civil Rights Act? Does that make sense? I think so. I'll defer to Casey. Casey, do you does that resonate for you, yeah. Whitney Young? Yeah. Yeah, sure. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think uh, you know what comes immediately to mind is the fact that you know as early as the you know eighteen late eighteen hundreds, you know, and early nineteen hundreds, W. B. Du Bois was writing about the failed program of Reconstruction. Uh, well, let's call it the sabotage program of reconstruction. So anyone who is very serious about what the caller is talking about, which I think makes a lot of sense, um, has great resources to lean upon, starting with Du Bois' uh, fantastic analysis of reconstruction and so many of the things that should have happened in reconstruction still need to happen today. And you can draw a straight line from that all the way up to Ta-Nehisi Coates' Case for Reparations and Nicole Hannah-Jones' recent piece in New York Times Magazine um, on reparations. Uh, any conversation about 
um, policy to address and redress um, the theft and plunder and, uh, and organized destruction of Black families and Black livelihoods has to include reparations. And there have been great people um, who have spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I will start with them. Thank you for that comment, Chris. And we'll go next to Frank in San Francisco. You're on. Hey, morning, Frank here. Uh, I, just uh, speaking from the immigrants' point of view, I came to this country because I thought America was always a great idea. And I travel internationally for a living, and I've been everywhere. And, and America's my home. And I became a citizen so I could vote. And the first election I got to vote in was Bush-Gore, which was decided by a, a court, not of my peers, I'm afraid. So, and and, and the denigration and uh, of immigrants. I mean, I came and went in America, and I was never discriminated against because I have blue eyes and I talk like this. But but uh, the dignity of labor has been removed, and the pursuit of happiness that that, that the dignity of labor is contingent on has lost us, I'm afraid. And, and your constitution was, was framed by a lot of Scotsmen. And Mr. Trump's mother was Scottish. So, you know, it's time you wake up, America, and have a wee think about who built this country, you know, and, and, and respect them and give them a bit of dignity. That's all. Thank you very much. Thank you for the call, Frank. Is there anything you want to say in response to that, Casey? Say amen. Sure. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> all right. Let's go to our next caller. We have Ryan in Walnut Creek. Hello. Um, yeah, so my comment is the the uh, adage that America is the pursuit, uh, the life, love, and the pursuit of happiness was actually created in the 1920s, and it replaced life, love, and the pursuit of wealth. So our country, our founding fathers were rich people, and they made their money off of the backs of poor people. And, and uh, so everyone talks about going back to the founding fathers and going back to the constitution but i think it's deeper than that because there's capitalism built into the constitution so so it's it's just creating a greater divide between the one percenters and the 0.1 percenters and the other people so i think we got to go deeper than the constitution and rewrite stuff all right thank you for that comment ryan I, that leads me to uh, another question for you, Casey, around hearing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you've spoken about or you've written about um, kind of finding peace or I know I, I think you were riffing off of the James Baldwin quote um, where you said, hopefully to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious would be to be at peace, perfect peace. That would be your hope versus being in a constant state of rage. Um, so I'm curious, what does life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, what would that look like for you? What do you hope it looks like for the United States? Well, I, again, I'll go back. This is a great question. I go back to Douglas. Um, I spent a great deal of time thinking about him and sitting with his work. And one of the things that I just sort of jotted down as I was reading, I said, wow, what would this beautiful, brilliant man have done? with his years on this planet, had not his country um, committed him to human bondage and afterwards had not sort of, you know, trapped him in this uh, role of fighting for something that should not have had to be fought for, you see. Um, when I think of when people talk about, oh, the police killing folks and a great activist friend of mine, he often responds to people who say, well, you know, shouldn't the police be able to kill people if, it, if, it, if they've done something that warrants it? And he always asks them, he says, well, what um, would justify the police killing your brother, killing your mother, killing your friend? What could they do that would justify them being murdered by the police, you see? So um, when I think about the Black Art of Escape, I wrote it to honor, you know, the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans who were brought to America in 1619. I wrote it to say thank you to all of them for all that they have done for, um, to enable you and I 
uh, two free black people to sit on public radio uh, in the morning for an hour without any threat to our physical bodies. And I wrote it to really try to help us grapple with this question of how do we live in a country that's designed to kill us? And um, as much as I appreciate how much work we've done to try to assimilate in this country um, and uh, in advance, as much as I appreciate so much of the protest work that continues to this day, um, what I really want us to understand is two things. One, um, the most radical act we can commit as Black people in this country is to be well. Uh, I went to a protest the other day and I left after about 20 minutes and I went and I sat in the garden and had tea with a dear friend of mine, two black men having tea. You know, I don't, you know, <laughs> yeah, I totally support the, pro the protest, but that was a much more radical thing for us than going out and, you know, letting the NYPD bash our heads in. So that's the first thing. The second is when I think about my 15 year old niece, when I think about my eight year old cousin, when I think about those two black boys I saw on the A train going uptown a few years back, I want them to know that no matter how this country treats them, there's a freedom on the inside, a freedom that this country did not give us and that this country cannot take away. And uh, when I think about life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, we didn't need the Declaration of Independence to tell us that. Uh, the, the human spirit uh, yearns and reaches. Uh, you see, to, uh, uh, Maya, Maya Angelou said it great, you know, the caged bird dreams of freedom. Uh, the human spirit demands that we reach for and, and, and strive for and believe in life, liberty, and our happiness. That's why we've come on this planet, um, not to save and die for America. I, I'm not particularly interested in any more black people dying for America, but I do appreciate the efforts, starting with Douglas and long before him, that so many black people have made to improve this country. And I asked uh, our white brothers and sisters to uh, put as much on the line as uh, so many other people have done in this urgent time. So I'm just going to read a couple listener comments that we're getting. Margaret, Margaret tweets, referencing Angels of Our Better Nature by Steven Pinker. Literature and the arts are one of the best ways to reach the public and to change hearts and minds. Do not dismiss this so easily as a way to get those who will not read a history book to learn of history. So I'll let that one stand. And then a listener asks, do you expect to see more voting and political engagement after this year of unrest? Or how do you feel people can best manifest anger, frustration, and desire for change? Your thoughts, Casey? Well, you've got to vote. I hope if, if people don't vote in the fall, um, we're going to be in big trouble. But I do, I have great hopes for voting. More importantly, or as important, people have to be allowed to vote. And we just saw in primaries uh, last week, a few weeks ago, um, the waiting times for black people um, at the polls, um, somebody, I think it might have been Stacey Abrams, uh, compared it to a poll tax. So, um, you know, we say vote, 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 but then we have uh, systems in place that don't allow people to do that. So we've got to do that. Um, as it pertains to what to do with your, your anger, I'd encourage, first of all, um, uh, Baldwin used to always say, don't become bitter. Um, find some, especially for black people, I want you to find some love. Go and sit with your friend in the garden, have some tea, go and take a nap like the nap ministry uh, uh, recommends down in Atlanta. Um, do not let your rage, and it is a very justified rage, do not let your rage destroy all the joy and light inside of you. Um, and beyond that, uh, hey, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't want to be in legal trouble, but I think what so many people have done with their rage, whether that was looting the Sephora in Atlanta or, or, or uh, destroying uh, uh, Christopher Columbus's statue or setting the slave market in favor of North Carolina on fire, um, I think all of those actions uh, fit squarely in the American <laughs> tradition of uh, citizen uh, behavior. So as you come to the end of the hour, I'm wondering, I don't know if you have it in front of you or have it memorized. There was the, I can read it if not, but you would sound so much better reading it. Uh, the end of the um, Black Art of Escape, where you say, as we stand, you and I at the shoreline of destruction, that piece. Mm -hmm. Let's see, I think I've got that, let's see. Yes. All right. That's it. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you can just read that one little thing for us. As we stand, you and I, at the shoreline of destruction, seeing in the distance the end of this American empire, there is but one way forward, old and true. Be not conformed to this society, nor kill yourself to make it love you, but be transformed in it, against it, by the renewal of your mind, body, and spirit, no matter the cost. Great. Thank you. I know I hadn't asked, pre- asked you before to, to read that, That's so thank right. you for <laughs> coming with Improv. It. I love that. Yeah. That's great. Because <laughs> um, I, thought, I thought it was a really um, powerful statement to say to be transformed in it, uh, renewal mm-hmm. of your body, mind, and spirit. So we've been talking this hour about Frederick Douglass's famous speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, and the meaning of July 4th in these unique and challenging times. Casey Gerald has been my guest. He's the author of the memoir, There Will Be No Miracles Here. He also wrote the essay, The Black Art of Escape, published by New York Magazine. I recommend checking out both. And thank you so much for joining me for this conversation and just for all your insights on Douglass. Thank you. It's been a joy. That's been Forum for Friday, July 3rd, and we hope that you have a lovely and safe holiday weekend. Thanks for joining us. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.